Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Back to another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Scheinwald, founder of the Mission Driven Group, a portfolio of student-related companies. And I started this podcast with VFA to help showcase the gritty stories of entrepreneurs. These days, entrepreneurship is portrayed in the media as easy. Money's just waiting for your idea, and then you'll have a billion-dollar valuation waiting as well. In reality, as you've heard on our shows already, it is much harder. No entrepreneur has called it easy so far. Today, I interview Noah Glass, founder and CEO of Olo, a software-as-a-service platform that facilitates online and mobile ordering for the food services industry. Olo's motto is skip the line, and that is trademark, so don't try to steal it. Olo has allowed more than 12 million customers to order ahead at over 150 restaurant brand clients, including Five Guys, Chipotle, Baskin Robbins, Veggie Grill, Noodles and & Company, and more. Olo provides the technology behind these brands' mobile ordering experiences. Just in case you're intrigued, there is no Olo app that you can download, which is something I learned as I started doing my research for this show. Who likes waiting around? I imagine that Noah Glass doesn't. That said, Noah has been patiently growing Olo since 2005 and has picked up many accolades along the way. He's been named a new M-Commerce Baron by Business Week and was also named the Silicon Alley 100 by Business Insider. CNBC, The Wall Street Journal, Inc., Advertising Age, New York Magazine, The New York Times, and, and you'll hear today, Good Morning America as well. Uh, you name the major media outlet or show, Noah Glass has been quoted or featured. Over the years, Oldo has raised more than $20 million in funding from PayPal, Core Capital Partners, David Frankel, and more. It's quite the story. It's our pleasure to have Noah Glass on the Smart People Should Build Things podcast today. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Noah, thanks for being here today. Jim, thanks for having me. Bolo turned 10 years old earlier this month. What does it feel like to be a gray beard of the tech industry? <laughs> Um, no, it's an amazing thing. I mean, I, when we started, um, I never knew or thought or dreamed that we would get to 10 years. Um, I always thought that we were either going to flame out within two years or really make it in four. So to be around for 10 years um, is a great thing. And, and yeah, as you say, like the New York tech community has changed a lot. Um, I think when we started, um, it was a little bit of like a strange thing to be a tech entrepreneur in New York. I mean, there were a couple companies here, um, mainly in ad tech, uh, a little bit of financial technology. But yeah, starting up, and especially in like the restaurant SMB space, um, people thought that was a, a little odd. And it's just exploded over the last 10 years. So it's really, really fun to see all of the activity. I'd say like, I, I don't know how well Olo is really known in the New York tech community because we've shifted over time from being a B2C company into being a B2B company. So because we're 
not a service that people use every day. We're kind of behind the scenes. We're powering a lot of these restaurant brands, but we're in the background. Um, a lot of people don't know that we exist. So um, I don't know. These days I get more confused with the other Noah Glass, the one who was a co-founder of Twitter um, and was uh, unceremoniously, uh, I guess, forced out of the company. Uh, people get very confused, including Google. Google gets very confused. If you type in who founded Twitter, it's my picture there. So that adds to the confusion. Um, but a lot of people don't know the story of Olo that we've been around for this long. It's funny you should say that because <clears throat> I saw, I, I actually, when I was doing my research here, got a little Noah Glass confused and, and determined that I wouldn't ask you about it because you probably get asked about it all the time. But are, are you getting the other Noah Glass's mail and, uh, and email regularly? Yeah, I mean, people say like, hey, do you want to come on to our television program and do an interview go. about Jack like <laughs> taking back over as you know the CEO of Twitter and like what he did to you and... Um, I haven't had any fun with that. I haven't, I haven't had too much fun with that yet. But uh, I feel like you know, there's also like a lot of people who say, like, will you come and speak at our conference? And we couldn't get Jack or Biz to come, but we thought that. <laughs> and then I know that, like, okay, they don't really want me. They want the other Noah Glass. But I'm sure you get pretty creative with that if you, if you wanted to. If you ever got bored, you could, uh, you could find yourself a hobby there. Well, the speaker's fees for these things are sometimes, like, you know, $35,000 to fly to Berlin and speak to... You know, young European entrepreneurs, and sometimes I think, like, well, it's their mistake. Maybe I could go <laughs> buy a car or something. Give it a shot and see what happens. Yeah. Um, so 10 years in, you've, you've completed a Series C fundraise in the last year. Would you still consider Olo to be a startup? And, and, and if you do, when do you graduate out of startuphood? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a, it's a strange distinction, like what's a startup and what's not a startup. And I find that the same thing is true of saying that you're an entrepreneur. Um, and... Guilty pleasure. I watched uh, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. This is like one of my like release things, and they never help in The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, because the people who claim to be entrepreneurs are always like kind of between jobs kind of thing. So they're both confusing terms. I don't know when you stop being an entrepreneur and start being a founder slash CEO. I don't know when a startup becomes a company. I feel like um, there are a lot of good things about being a startup or ha sort of having the startup mentality, and one of our values. At Olo is sort of the the scrappiness and the resourcefulness of being a startup. Um, I played lacrosse in college, and there's this great component of the game of lacrosse called a, a ground ball. And the ground ball is about, you know, there's a, a ball on the ground between two players. Who's going to be the one that picks it up? And you have to be really scrappy and resilient and find some creative way of being the one who emerges from the scrum with the ball. And um, that's actually like the value is to have like a, a ground ball mentality and maintain that scrappiness. I think that really speaks to what startups are all about is you're under resourced but be resourceful. And um, that's what we try to maintain you know, despite being 10 years old and maybe even being a company at this point. So let's start from the beginning. The path to Olo. You graduated from Yale, you're soon launching Endeavor Globals. Um, South African office, and it seems to me like Endeavor Global has some affinity with BFA. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about Endeavor itself. How did a college grad uh, get the chance to launch a South African office? Yeah, Endeavor is like an, an amazing organization, and I just kind of found my way into it. So I studied uh, political science at Yale. I did the sort of most business-like thing that one could do with political science, science which was international development. And I got to work between my freshman and sophomore year at Yale at uh, Shutterfly.com, uh, the digital photo printing company. And I really, that was like the summer of 99. 
so it was like the absolute peak high times of the dot-com boom and I was just like totally entranced by the whole startup scene out there so I knew that I wanted to do something in entrepreneurship I knew that I was studying international development and Endeavor is kind of the perfect mix of those two things it's um, supporting high-growth entrepreneurs in emerging market countries really as a tool of development so it's not just creating subsistence level jobs is not just sort of microfinance kind of stuff, which is what you see a lot of. It's really looking at, you know, where is the next Microsoft, the next Google, or the next Amazon gonna come out of? How do we bring the resources to bear for entrepreneurs in emerging market settings that help them sort of get through some of the barriers that they face and succeed? And in doing so, um, also, cultivate like a venture capital angel investing community and really create a virtuous cycle of high growth entrepreneurs that then wind up becoming investors and then inspire more entrepreneurs, um, create high quality jobs. So I was lucky that I came on to Endeavor at a time when um, the World Bank started to get involved with Endeavor and, and say, hey, you know, you did it. You, you proved that this thing has worked really well in many different countries in Latin America, but we think that there's a an opportunity for Endeavor to go into other emerging market regions and do the same model, um, which was good because I don't speak Spanish or Portuguese and I would have had to to really be effective at Endeavor pre-World Bank involvement. Um, but that was a, a moment when Endeavor started to look at sub-Saharan Africa and I got to take scoping trips with Linda Rotenberg, the founder and CEO of, uh, of Endeavor, to a number of different um, cities, business cities in Africa. and we ultimately decided that Johannesburg was the place that it had to be. That was really the business capital of sub-Saharan Africa. And it was right around the time that Linda and her husband um, found out that they were pregnant. And um, it just so happened that I was kind of the man on the ground and I got a call um, saying, hey, why don't you just stay there <laughs> for a little bit? And you, you were literally of, the man on the ground. This is yeah, the pro yeah, proper yeah. usage of literally finally. Yes, yeah, literally okay. the man on the ground. I was... Uh, <laughs> I was there in, in Johannesburg. We would take these trips where we'd stay for like a week and then come back. Um, and one part of Linda saying, hey, can you be there? Um, and one part of someone who's, who's played a very large role in my life, uh, David Frankel, um, who was an entrepreneur, Harvard Business School graduate, who was then back in, in Johannesburg and starting to do investing, but really was passionate about bringing Endeavor to that market. You know, he said, you really need somebody on the ground here to help start this office. So I wound up um, staying for what was supposed to be originally a three-month assignment, and then that three-month assignment turned into a 12-month assignment, effectively. And uh, I stayed for the entire year of, of 2004, and um, amazing experience. I got to you know live in a new place and create a whole new group of friends, but I also got to see... 161 different entrepreneurs at different stages. And then through Endeavor's selection process, narrow that field down to what was eventually a group of um, six companies, eight entrepreneurs. So there were a couple companies that had co-founders uh, that we selected as the first class of Endeavor entrepreneurs in South Africa. And uh, it was an amazing experience in and of itself, but it also is really how I saw smartphones and smartphone software in the wild. and saw the opportunity that, that eventually got me excited about Olo. So among those eight entrepreneurs at, uh, at Endeavor, 
is there one that you, you you can look back on now and say, wow, they really did something amazing? Is there one that you're particularly proud of being of, of helping mm -hmm. to, to foster and facilitate? I'm really proud of like of all the companies. I was I was thinking about this before. There's one company that um, I thought was really really cool. It's in the food space, but not in like the restaurant space. But I'll tell you about this company. The entrepreneur's name is Stefan Rue, and the company was called Milkworks, and they had built up this incredibly interesting business where they were basically manufacturing. He called it ice cream when we first met him, and that was a little bit confusing, so we thought about it as like sweet ice cream. Now we'd call it frozen yogurt or sort of a more like yogurt-like product. But he created this yogurt-like product and um, would sell it to kind of like independent contractor guys that would ride around on, on bikes or had carts, and then they would sell it in their local community. And um, like we at first we like totally didn't get it right because we were like I, he's selling ice cream why is that like a why is that a good thing because he was telling us this is a very nutritious op nutritious option for people to have for lunch we we're like well that sounds crazy <laughs> like ice cream for lunch that's not a nutritious thing at all tell my wife that yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but then he said like well no listen the alternative is that people are are able to afford either a bottle of coke. Coca-Cola or um, or this ice cream, and then we understood like the, that the ice cream was not ice cream the way we think about it. It was more like, you know, a, uh, a frozen yogurt, like you know, frozen um, substance, but but something that had protein and something that had calcium and something that had fat, and something that had sugar and carbohydrates in it. But it was like a much more balanced meal for somebody than drinking a Coca-Cola, and like literally at that price point that was the option for this huge community. And so he had this one guy um, with you know a company of, I don't know, 40 people that worked in the factory. That was great in of itself. But then you really sort of peel back the onion. You saw he was supporting these 300 independent guys who could go out and sell what they bought for him for effectively like 20 cents for a dollar. And they made a you know, great margin on that. And it was then like feeding a more nutritious thing than the alternative, a bottle of Coke, to this whole population. You, you imagine like, okay, let's say 100 people stop and get a little ice cream cone or a little dish of this ice cream, um, or, or yogurt, I should say, um, from 300 guys. Like that's feeding 30,000 people on a daily basis. Like that's an amazing thing. And so we then became very focused on the business and what he needed so that he could build another factory and another factory and expand the operation to get to the next 300 guys, the next 300 guys, um, and feed more of the community. Because it, it felt like uh, a great business when we looked at the numbers, but also one that was without local competition and um, that had this great impact beyond just being a, a profitable business. Totally the kind of entrepreneur that um, Endeavor can help. Um, I think there's a perception that Endeavor only does tech entrepreneurship. This was definitely not that. Um, but what a cool story it was. And uh, amazing to see him really competing with international competitors, but no real local competitors who were strong in his space. Incidentally, I said tell my wife that because I would like someone to convince her that I can eat ice cream for lunch. I see. So that's why I said okay. that, just in case. That's, that you're was, uh, you're just covering working. yourself now. Exactly, exactly. So... Uh, <laughs> So is, uh, are they still around today, the, the, this firm? They are, yeah. Oh. I, I haven't, uh, to be honest, kept like super close tabs in them, but I know they're one of the Endeavor success stories. And um, like I said, there were a bunch of those initial six companies that we selected that have gone on to do awesome things. And what's really cool about the Endeavor process is, you know, that was 2004. So 
they were selected and it's now been like 11 years, many of the entrepreneurs then kind of become involved as Endeavor board members, become involved giving funds back to Endeavor to uh, support the, the operation going forward. And there's really this kind of virtuous cycle. A lot of them then invest in a lot of the companies that Endeavor's now looking at for the 2015 class of entrepreneurs. Um, it's very cool to see that kind of virtuous cycle um, really working in markets where it just hasn't existed before. And so you're enjoying yourself in South Africa. What what brought you back to the States? Why leave uh, something you're really enjoying? Uh, so I knew I wanted to, to come back. Uh, I knew I wanted to, I mean, originally I was coming back to go to business school. And I'd had this sort of nights and weekends project, this curiosity of, I'd seen a lot of activity with smartphones. I became convinced that smartphones were actually kind of bigger in Johannesburg than they were in the U.S. Um, in 2004. And, and people think that sounds strange. I don't think about Johannesburg as a high-tech place. But it's um, a pretty well-documented leapfrog effect of the result of not having landline infrastructure was much cheaper to put up cell towers. And of course, landline infrastructure was how we all got dial-up internet. And so for internet, you got now your internet through these mobile towers. So smartphones make a lot of sense when you think about it. So uh, smartphones were, were there. I saw them in the wild. I thought, you know, these are going to be ubiquitous. Everybody's going to have these far beyond BlackBerry. They're going to be much more powerful devices than um, what we're used to with, with BlackBerrys in the U.S. Um, and then I saw a lot of activity in moving money from point A to point B, originally in the mobile banking segment in South Africa. But um, seeing kind of smartphone money movement from phone to phone and smartphone software, um, I just became convinced that there was a big opportunity for the smartphone to kind of reinvent commerce and reinvent e-commerce as we thought about it. And I came back to this idea around coffee and food and thought, you know, it's such a routine transaction, such a time-sensitive transaction. Um, and it's one where people just develop a habit. I get my coffee the same way every single morning. If I could order ahead, pay ahead, and then skip the line when I got to the coffee shop or the restaurant, what a better experience that would be for me and what a better operational system that could give the restaurant to do these more efficiently and more accurately. And I started to work with some engineers that I met through the Endeavor process on building a prototype. And I wound up showing that prototype um, to David Frankel, who was involved with Endeavor South Africa and had become a personal friend. Um, before that, he'd started um, Internet Solutions, which was kind of the, the largest ISP, uh, internet service provider in Africa. Had sold it, had done very well on that, and was now sort of looking at investing. That was his interest in, in Endeavor, really. Um, and he, you know, in my mind, sort of very famously said to me, like, look, I think this is interesting, after seeing the, the prototype of it. Um, I think you're a scrappy guy, and I think you know, I've seen you build up Endeavor South Africa over the last year. If you're willing to quit your job at Endeavor, and if you're willing to tell Harvard Business School that you're not coming, that you're going to withdraw your admission, then I'll put half a million dollars into the company and get you started. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. So how thrilled were your parents that you 
uh, were skipping Harvard Business School? Well, not <laughs> originally. <laughs> I mean, I, my parents are both, uh, they wouldn't describe themselves as such, but they're both entrepreneurs. Um, so it's nice to have parents who are, who are entrepreneurs. My dad is a, a doctor, has a private practice. My mom is a food entrepreneur, has been a cookbook author and a caterer and has done all sorts of things in the food space. So they're really sort of my true entrepreneurial inspiration. So I think they knew that bug was in me somewhere. Uh, also, growing up, I always had kind of entrepreneurial uh, schemes, I'll call them, um, ways to you know sell candy bars or sell uh, sodas in junior high school and make a little bit of extra money. Um, so I think they like knew that that was kind of following my heart, but it's tough when you're walking away from something like Harvard Business School, especially when your parents live 10 miles away. And uh, you know, I'm my mom's baby boy, and she was very excited after being in this dangerous place of Johannesburg that I was going to be so close to home. Um, so I think that was that was tough, but they they've been super supportive all the way through, and it wasn't like a question where I'd said like, "What do you think I should do?" or like you know, is this the right move? I just knew that this is the right thing for me. And my presentation to them was, hey, I made this decision that I'm not going to business school now and I'm going to do this startup and we'll see where it takes me. And from that moment, they've been super supportive. And so meeting David Frankel was somewhat fortuitous. He was he was connected through Endeavor. Yeah. So had you not met him, do you think you'd be where you are today? Was there someone? Was the idea in you, and there was, you would have just gone to someone else and, and, and found an investor? Yeah. I mean, I was talking to people very informally because I did I did like have a job and I did have a plan of where I was going to go. Um, so I yeah I was talking to people. I think there was uh, interest from from various folks in sort of what I was up to and was this idea really something that could work? So I'm guessing I would have probably found somebody at some point who would have given me enough money to kind of start the idea. But I think you know, where I really credit David is, is you know, giving the amount of money that he did, which really gave us a good shot at you know, not just three months to try to make something work, but like nine months to a year to make something work. And also you know, the quit your job and withdraw from Harvard Business School, that was like a gut check of how serious are you about this? Like before I put my money in, I want to make sure that you're serious. And it was also like a great thing because it ultimately was like a burn the boats moment where there was no retreat. Like we I, we had to move forward and make this work. And um, that's, that's a great thing. That's a great gift for an entrepreneur to like not have other options and to sever ties to other options and just like have to make the thing work. But I was like so lucky, and so many entrepreneurs don't get um, funding up front, and they have to work, you know, it, it, as a nights and weekends project for a year or two years without funding, and never really sure if it's going to take off. And they're borrowing money from friends and family, and that can be really awkward at times. And it, it was a very unusual thing. I think that's a big myth of entrepreneurship that like it's going to be easy to raise the first round. It usually is not. My case is not representative of most. It was like total luck that I found an individual who had the conviction in me, and he said, I invest in people more than I invest in ideas, um, to put half a million dollars of his own money into the company. So he was the first round entirely. Yep. What did you do with the $500,000? I think you said you, got about, you figured that was about nine months of time? Yeah. So what did, what did the $500,000 go towards? Um, mainly, I mean, people uh, initially, right? It, it like enabled me to bring on the team that I had in Johannesburg, South Africa, as an engineering team and pay them salaries instead of just sweat equity, which is what they've been working for before that. 
enabled me to pay myself and um, therefore quit my job and devote myself full time um, to making all the work. Um, I remember like the first day, you know, going and opening up the bank account, the wire comes in and then uh, my next move, I think after that was to come home, lie on my couch and say to my wife, uh, what do I do now? <laughs> and um, I have to give my wife credit like immensely. I mean, there have been so many times over the last 10 years where I haven't known what to do next. And our relationship is one where um, we talk about work a lot. And, and if I have a question, like she's my number one advisor and I like to think vice versa when she has a question about her work. We work in completely different fields, by the way. She's a historian, and so our joke is that you know, she works in the past. I, I'm a tech guy, so I work in the future, and we kind of coexist in, in the present. Um, but she gave me this you know, great bit of advice, which was you know, going and talking to restaurants and figuring out who our first restaurant was going to be, who's going to use this prototype as an actual you know, minimum viable product, but in their operation. And we wound up... Um, decided not to do that in New York. We decided to do that on the Yale campus uh, in New Haven, Connecticut at a coffee shop that I knew pretty well. Um, and it was the, uh, it was called Coffee Two, and it was uh, a place that sold coffee, which is great because I originally conceived of this as a coffee solution, order your coffee and they make it and it's ready for you when you get there. Um, but they also sold paninis and that was a great stroke of luck because the panini business wound up being almost bigger than the coffee business and people on their way to class would uh, use our service to place orders and know that whether there was a line or wasn't a line, they could schedule a time to go pick up that order 10 minutes before class started. Their panini would be ready and they could take it with them to class. Um, so that was awesome advice. Um, I think we spent a little bit of the initial money on doing some scrappy marketing um, inside of that store and around that, that campus. Um, but it was very bootstrapped. I mean, we, we did things like we um, gave the coffee shop uh, little coffee sleeves that you know, explained to their customers how they could sign up for the service. Um, and that was really cool to be like walking around the Yale campus and seeing all these coffee sleeves out there talking about the service. It was like a really effective targeted marketing. But I mean, those were maybe 15 cents per coffee sleeve. So we didn't burn through all the half million dollars on that. And so you started as a as a B two C product. That's right. That was by text, right? Yeah, exactly right. So this, exactly this is two thousand five. Right. So we yeah. don't we don't have apps in this world. Yeah, fewer or, than five percent of consumers at that point had smartphones, and the ones that did really had you know, Blackberries, and so they used them for emailing or checking sports scores. But there weren't apps the way that we think about apps today. So tell us about the iterations in the model along the way to where you are today. Yeah, so we started out um, B2C. In other words, you know, it was a marketplace. You would go to, it was called uh, gomobo.com. You'd go to gomobo.com, you'd see all the restaurants, initially just this one coffee shop, but then when we launched in New York, um, we got up to about 20, 30 independent restaurants that were using the service, all in clusters. That was also my wife's idea of doing little clusters so that for an individual user in Rockefeller Center, there were like eight different choices. Or if you were in... Um, Madison Square Park, there were you know, seven choices there. Or if you were down in the financial district, there were a lot of clustered restaurants. Um, so we, the model was basically that the consumer would go to gomobo.com, they would create their account, and then they would go into the different menus, and they would create their favorite orders. And by linking up their phone to their account through a 
I don't know if you remember these double opt-in text message where you basically, you know, the computer screen would say, text this number to this short code to link up your phone. And you'd kind of do this thing where then basically your phone was registered to your account. Vague, um, vague recollection of this, yeah. <laughs> people remember this from like, uh, <coughs> what was it, like Google Answers or Google um, Maps maybe had like a text service early on. But anyway, so you would link up your phone to your account and then that would enable you to send a single digit text message, like number one from my phone to the short code would then fire off my coffee order to Coffee 2 in New Haven, Connecticut just on time. Like immediately when I texted it, it would fire that order into their system. I could go pick it up. So originally like there was no revenue model. We were trying to figure out like, will we charge consumers a little bit more for the convenience of getting to skip the line? Or will the restaurant pay a little bit um, out of you know what they're already charging for customers to get to skip the line uh, for orders that come in digitally? Um, then we decided, and we you know looked. I can't say this was our original idea. We looked at what like Seamless Web at the time, now Seamless slash Grubhub, was doing, and they were charging at the time about like a ten percent transaction fee per order, and so that was a model that we shifted to, and we charged the restaurants a per transaction fee. Um, what happened when we got up to 25, 30 restaurants around New York City um, was that we were launching the service in the media capital of the world. And September 20th of 2006, we were doing a promotion on Wall Street. I was there with a bunch of guys from Craigslist that we'd hired wearing sandwich boards and handing out flyers, basically saying, like, use this service to text and you'll get a free coffee down the street at this participating restaurant. Um, and happened to hand one to a Wall Street Journal reporter who thought it was really cool. It was like, I've never seen a text message service that lets you buy something. Like, this is a really novel idea. Um, Wrote an article that came out um, in the Wall Street Journal, and then I got a phone call immediately from um, Good Morning America, and they said, uh, we want to shoot a video interview of you about the service. This is really cool. And... The next morning, September 21st, 2006, at 7 a.m., uh, Good Morning America came on, and it was like a teaser story, and it was one of the first stories they did, a three-minute-long puff piece about using your phone to text message your order and pick it up at all these restaurants, including Dunkin' Donuts and Subway. Now, what they didn't say is that those were the franchisee of Dunkin' Donuts and the franchisee of Subway at Rockefeller Center, not the full chain. But they said this in a piece that was viewed by 6 million consumers, or 6 million viewers, but I think about the most consumers. So uh, obviously, like a lot of people were excited about like a service where they could skip the line at Dunkin' Donuts or skip the line at Subway. And so we got a lot of phone calls that day from um, restaurant brands who were interested in, in working with us. Um, we also got a lot of phone, uh, phone calls from Dunkin' Donuts and Subway saying like, Everybody thinks they can use this everywhere. It's just that one store. Why would you say that? And I said, well, I didn't, I didn't say it. It was Good Morning America that said it. I just you know, did the interview, and then they went to that one shop, and it's a big nationwide audience. Um, but what happened there was interesting. We, these big chains started to contact us, and they said, you know, nobody knows who GoMobo.com is. Like, everybody knows who Dunkin' Donuts is, or everybody knows who Five Guys is. Is there a way that we could use this technology kind of as a, a white label service. So you've got the technology that can let customers order and pay and skip the line when they get to the restaurant, 
but could we do that with our branding on top of it? So could you do a five guys branded version of gomoba.com? And it's exactly what we wound up doing. And the model at that point shifted from, hey, if we're going to sell the brand, our platform, it doesn't really make sense for us to charge on a per transaction basis because ultimately the brand is going to be encouraging its own consumers to join the service and use it. So it wouldn't really be right for us to charge them based on their marketing to their consumers. But we should charge them as a kind of a monthly fee, subscription fee per store per month. And so I'm not sure that SaaS or software as a service was a very well understood model at the time. Um, and it certainly was not a well understood model in the restaurant industry. And it's still sort of getting up to speed where people understand that they can use a technology platform and basically subscribe to it instead of buying something outright or building it in house. Um, but we switched to this model where we charge each store um, a fee per month for an unlimited number of orders. And so really then the onus is on them to get their consumers to sign up for it and use it. I'll tell you, it's amazing. We were looking, um, we used to uh, have to go and you know, market to consumers by doing crazy you know, uh, campaigns on Wall Street and handing things out to them or paying for them to get a free coffee on their first time. And the average cost per user was $15 to get a consumer to use the platform. I remember there was a board meeting when we'd made the switch over to being Olo, the white label SaaS technology platform for restaurants, taking a step back from a B2C marketplace model to become a B2B model, or as I call it, kind of B2B2C. We're selling to these restaurants and they're selling to the consumers. And I remember saying, like, it's been six months since we made the switch. We were spending we'd raise more money at this point, $150,000 per month to acquire 10,000 customers at $15 a head. Now we're getting paid $150,000 a month um, by these restaurants, and we're getting 100,000 customers joining the service, and we're paying zero to get them because the restaurants are doing the marketing for us. This B2B model is a much better model. This makes so much sense that we've made this pivot from going out and marketing to the consumers ourselves and hoping, hoping that they spend enough to get us out of the hole of spending $15 to acquire them to a model where we know we're getting paid, we have long-term contracts, we have big brands where we sell to one decision maker and then a thousand stores come onto the system. Um, Much more predictable and um, it's a model that I think Wall Street loves right now. I mean, SaaS models are great. You know, the, the sales process to sell to a thousand unit chain is obviously longer and more challenging than selling to an independent, you know, one decision maker uh, at that, that restaurant. Um, but the impact of that sale is, you know, can be a thousand times or, or even more than that, uh, larger than uh, an independent restaurant. And you have great visibility. I mean, after doing this now for 10 years, we know if we start the sales process when it's likely to end up being a signed deal, and then we know when it's a signed deal, how long it'll take to get up and running in all of the stores. And it's very predictable in that way, which is great. We have awesome visibility into where a business is gonna be six months from now or 12 months from now. So that, that inflection point, the the um, was it Good Morning America. Yeah, I don't want to get, I get the, the appropriate you know, morning show. Uh, I'll say the wrong one by accident. There uh, was 2006. That's right. And 
the change came how long after? I think it still took about like two years for us to really like shake off B2C um, altogether. Maybe even longer, maybe even three years. But for a while we thought like, well, maybe we can do both of these things. Maybe we can get restaurant chains promoting it and we'll still charge the 10% or maybe we can still do it as a GoMobo branded thing. Um, and we had this restaurant chain uh, that's still a client today and an awesome one, um, Muya, And they're a better burger chain out of Dallas, Texas. And they saw the Good Morning America piece and they thought, this is really cool. Um, we're willing to pay 10% per order to have our customers signing on to GoMobo and using it to order uh, at Muya. And that really, I mean, what we saw when they were promoting it to their customers was basically that same ratio of like, we're getting 10 times the number of orders there than we get anywhere else because they're behind it and they're pushing it. Um, and that sort of like took a while to get that data, but become confident that that was a better model for the restaurant brands to promote it to their end users instead of us trying to go and win consumers uh, on our own. Um, and then sort of for us to figure out, well, instead of the 10% model of charging on every transaction, more restaurants would do what Muya is doing if we did this flat fee per month per store model. So it took a while to evolve. Um, I think you know, it's very relevant that at the time, 2008, 2009, we were going through a big recession. And so the idea of spending $150,000 a month on consumer marketing was scary, right? Because we weren't positive that on every occasion we're going to make more money back on a user than the $15 that we spent. It's the equation of the lifetime value of the customer and making sure that's larger than the cost to acquire the customer, LBC versus CAC. And um, that was scary to be putting all this money out there, spending all this money, drawing down on our cash reserves, not knowing is there another funding round around the corner because the market was not in a good place. So it was, I think, a, a very um, thoughtful decision. It was one that I think I resisted as a young entrepreneur for a while because I always had this vision, having worked at Shutterfly before, that like I was going to create the consumer brand and taking a backseat and being a technology provider and not the consumer brand and sort of saying, well, it's okay, like Seamless and Grubhub will do that side of the market. We'll focus on the big chains and we'll be their technology provider. It took um, a little bit of like swallowing my pride and a little bit of like maturity to say like, well, this wasn't originally what I wanted to do, but my mission of you know, getting digital ordering into as many restaurants as possible is actually better served if I tack and go in this direction. So um, it took a while, it took a number of probably heated board meetings and board members saying, Noah, we've seen this movie before the data is telling you to make this move and me saying like, no, I, I want to do the B2C stuff. But eventually, you know, you couldn't look at the numbers of what was happening at Muya versus what was happening in New York City um, in the market where we were doing marketing and say, yeah, it doesn't make sense. It, it was just uh, clear as day. So it was a good, a good pivot, partially from exogenous variables of what was happening in the market. Um, but partly just the dumb luck of getting onto Good Morning America and having all this interest outside of our home market um, and getting to run this little experiment uh, in Dallas, Texas. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. So you start in 2005, and we're talking about the, you know, Good Morning America, then this pivot. When do you start to feel, or do you ever, I'm not sure, uh, maybe I'll talk on a personal level, I, I'm always a little paranoid that, that things are going to turn another way, but when do you start to feel like you're out of the vulnerable stages uh, for Olo, and like, mm -hmm. yeah, this thing's going to make it, it's just a matter of how how big it becomes. Yeah, I think there's there's a very well, um, I think Fred Wilson from um, his, his blog, abc.com, has, I've heard him speak about this, and I assume that he's also blogged about it because um, he's a, a great blogger and his stuff is, is awesome. Um, he talks about this idea of like a moment when you hit product market fit. And the goal before that moment is to run a ton of experiments on the product and see what's really, uh, what the market is engaging with. And the goal after that, mo that you know, critical moment when you hit product market fit is going into execution mode and scaling the thing up like crazy. And I think, you know, we weren't sure if we had product market fit for quite some time. Um, and then, I don't know, a, a couple of years back, I remember just having this feeling like, okay, this has clicked. Like, our restaurant clients are happy. We're not losing any of them to just churn because they don't use the product, like you see with some shelfware products. Um, we're not losing anybody to competitors. Like we're we're serving them well. They're getting good return on investment from you know, paying us this monthly fee. Um, consumers like this. Consumers are using this more and more and more each year. We've established this good product market fit. And now I see that we're getting calls from restaurants that I originally never thought would use something like this now saying, well, I want to use it. An example of that was Cold Stone Creamery. Um, and so they called us and they said, we want to use your platform. And we originally thought, well, ice cream and uh, ordering online, it, it sort of, it doesn't feel right. It seems kind of crazy. But what they really wanted to use it for was ice cream cakes because people like to place ice cream cake orders and put a special decoration or special special message on top of the ice cream cake and big holidays like Father's Day like Mother's Day get a ton of ice cream cake orders very high revenue high profit product for them a big piece of their business in Coldstone and all of the ice cream places um, is ice cream cakes and so using Olo they were able to let customers order um, without having to make two trips to the store, without having to go through a complicated and needing to be very accurate um, you know, inscription on the cake on a phone call with somebody that might be in a loud environment. And they could do it 24 hours a day, even at hours when you know, the, the Cold Stone Creamery location was closed. There's nobody there in store, nobody there to pick up the phone if they were to call in. So huge boon for business, um, worked really, really well. Um, we then got Carvel, who said, hey, I saw you do this for Cold Stone. I'd like to do it. We got uh, Baskin-Robbins launched last year nationwide uh, our, the, for Baskin-Robbins ice cream cakes on Olo. Um, and I just, I never thought that we would be like the ice cream cake platform, <laughs> but we are. And, uh, and it's cool. So I, I think like things like that showed me there's a great product market fit. The market wants this. Um, it's time to, to scale up our ability to execute. We're out of the sort of 
evangelical and experimentation mode, we're in execution mode. And so that's when uh, I went to my board and I said, you know, we're a 12 person company. This market is like really hot. We need to scale up. We need to bring on yeah, a senior team that can help to do that. And we brought in uh, our COO, Matt Tucker, into the company. He's a guy that I've known. Uh, RRE Ventures is one of our investors. They've invested in a number of his companies. I sort of got to know him through that community. A uh, guy that I knew for a long time before, liked a lot, and I've seen him scale companies and just did a great job bringing in other senior executives that he knew and had worked with before, had done something similar in the past with him. And we've gone from a 12-person company at the end of 2012 to what's now a 65-person company, and we'll end this year at around 75 employees. Um, and we're just much better able to execute with a team of that size. And uh, we used to have to say no to a lot of restaurants that were maybe below a certain size where we thought, like, well, if we use up our bandwidth working with this 10-unit chain, then we'll never be able to do a 100-unit chain when they call. And so we were, I think, a little bit um, hesitant to engage with anything that was fewer than 50 units just based on, you know, we get paid by the number of stores. And so um, now we've been able to expand and say, well, even like a 10-unit chain we'll take on. And, um, you know, even a, in some cases like two, three, four-unit chain we'll take on if we see that there's like an exciting growth potential for that chain. Um, so that's nice, like being able to capture the market and, and knowing that um, people want to use, people want to do digital ordering, number one, but they want to do it specifically with Olo, number two, and then number three, that we have like the bandwidth and the ability to execute to serve all of them and do it at our standard, um, a very high standard, is, is an awesome place to be. You gave the example a second ago of the ice cream cakes, yeah. which is an amazing consumer insight that you can gain through your platform. Yep. Give me a give me a couple other quirky consumer insights that you've had. Oh, am, am I am I more inclined to have a, a salad or a hamburger on Monday? Yeah. So this is the most fascinating thing that we see. Like we now have we're, we have twelve million consumers on the platform, and we have ten thousand restaurants uh, on the platform, and so we can see really really interesting trends um, at a very high level. So we're able to see that the answer to your question is you would have a, a salad on a Monday. Um, people have salads, healthy sandwiches, Mondays and Tuesdays. Middle of the week, Wednesday and Thursday, they're bored of that stuff. They want to have something that has a little more variety. They get ethnic foods. You know, you get Mexican food, Asian food. You want more spices. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it is like party time. People get <laughs> people get burgers, people get uh, barbecue, they get pizza, they get burritos. And what's really interesting is that um, Throughout the year, it's like that too. Like January, February, people are very healthy, and the sandwich, healthy sandwich and salad places do well. End of the year, it's like burgers all the time. It's like you know the comfort food sort of stuff. There's this really interesting thing that we like did with the product, seeing um, something like that in how people were using it. So there's um, there's a concept of like a saved favorite. And a saved favorite is going to appear like on the first page of the app. You open up the app, your favorites are going to be there, and you've given them a name, so you like you know you know what what's in that order. You know it's your sandwich or whatever. Um, and then we also have this concept of uh, order history, where again like you can in one click replace an order that you've placed before. 
and people have said like, well, why do you need both? Like, why do you need both favorites and order history? And there's a very interesting reason, um, and that's that we notice that nobody saves unhealthy food as a favorite, but they definitely go in and order it again. They'll go into their order history and reorder the like sloppy cheeseburger that they got last Friday. They just seemingly like don't want to admit to themselves, give it a name, and like admit that they're going to save it as a favorite because they're routinely going to be ordering this thing, but they routinely order it. So. You see like a lot of healthy favorites and you see a lot of unhealthy order history reorders. Um, I don't know, I, my dad's a psychiatrist. I, I find like psychology stuff really interesting. It's fascinating. I'm fascinated by it. Like weird little eating I want to do a half an hour show just on, on the eating habits. I, I really want to probe more deeply it's on weird. that. But it's yeah, weird. it's amazing. I think you just described exactly what I had this week, right? A salad, a salad, <laughs> I had sushi today and I can imagine myself having a burger sushi. tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Um, <clears throat> so, Andrew Yang and I, the founder of, of VFA, have talked a lot about entrepreneurship over the years, and, and he really feels, and I think I, I agree, that that um, you know we start by shaping our company as entrepreneurs, and then ultimately our companies start to shape us. How do you feel like Olo has changed you as a manager and as a person? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you like one way it's shaped me, which is maybe like um, unexpected, uh, or it, people find it unexpected. I, I've, um, over the course of, of working and thinking about um, food and restaurants, I've become a vegetarian myself. Um, and I'm not like preachy about that. I'm not going to sort of like explain why everybody should be a vegetarian, but they should. But but uh, but no, I, I um, it's been interesting to be like so focused on food and thinking about how restaurants produce food and what the externalities of this industry um, look like and its impact on the planet and on animals and health and all this. So it's definitely like shaped the way that I eat. Um, I'd say it's also made me, uh, well, at the same time, like impatient about little things and patient about big things. So you know, our motto is skip the line. Our registered trademark is, is skip the line. I'm, uh, I joked to you downstairs when we were in the security desk that I was ironically waiting in a line. Um, but I'm very impatient with like waiting in lines or doing things when I feel like this, if someone had just thought about a better user experience for this scenario, everybody could be having a better, faster experience. Like so I what love, are some lines that must be skipped? That must, what are, what are yeah. some lines that will go away with time that, you, that you've experienced? I don't know. People say, like, you know, the DMV is such a pain. Like, that that feels like it's gotten better. Um, TSA pre is, like, my favorite thing in the world right now. Like, I, you know, I actually, um, our, one of our PR guys was, like, uh, tell me about TSA pre. And I was like, what? TSA what? And he's like, TSA pre. How could you, like, as your PR guy, like, you must get on this. Like, if anybody catches you and snaps a photo of you waiting in, like, the long line and when TSA pre is available, you'll never you'll, ne you'll never hear the end of it. Um, so I love stuff like that. Like, I'm, I'm, I, I like thinking about rethinking user experiences for the benefit of, of you know, me as a user, as a consumer, um, but also, like, so the operation just runs more efficiently. Like, I'm, I'm fascinated by that sort of challenge. Um, but at the same time, it's made me, like, more patient because I, I like I said, like, kind of feel, felt coming into this, like, it was either going to work or wasn't going to work, and it was going to be, like, a four-year clip of time, and then I was, like, on to the next adventure. And I can honestly say, like, it's been 10 years. I never thought we'd be doing, the, doing it for this long. 
I would be thrilled if I could do this for another 10 years. Like I am having more fun now than I've ever had in the company. Um, I can see more clearly like where we're going than I have ever been able to see before. It's an exciting place. I, I love where we're going. And um, I don't know, it's been, it's been neat to sort of, I think originally when I was walking into restaurants and telling them about smartphones and the ability to order from them, people probably thought I was like a crazy person and like not sure if they could, you know, trust what I said or, or like not really even sure if I was a crazy person or not. I think now like there's some credibility in having gotten that right and having been on record 10 years ago saying like smartphones are going to be ubiquitous. When smartphones become ubiquitous, it will forever change the way that restaurants and guests interact. Um, I think now people are like, yeah, you were right about that. So if you're telling me like the next thing, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt that you're not crazy and like more likely than not, you're thinking about this in the right way. And that's a that's a fun thing. And um, especially now to get to work with restaurant brands that are of the scale of you know, public companies and and. Uh, I don't know. It's it's sort of beyond where I, I thought it would be, um, and and a lot of fun. So that leads us into a, an inevitable final question here, which is: ten years from now, uh, you're you're still there. You're running things. What is what does Olu look like in the future? So I think ultimately um, we're super focused on restaurants, and we will be for the foreseeable future. Um, but we've started to do a little bit of experimentation, opportunistically, as other use cases have come up. And so, um, you know, we had a grocery store say, hey, I like what you've done with Coldstone and Carvel and Baskin Robbins around ice cream cakes. We don't sell ice cream cakes, we sell cakes. And they're very similar. People like to order them in advance and decorate them. Could you do this in our bakery? Um, and so, you know, Giant Eagle Supermarket is now a client of ours. And we're, we're super excited about that. And, and that might be the where the place where things start with the grocery segment, and it might get into things like the deli counter line. People would say like, "Oh my God, if I could have the deli counter line, and I just walked up and my my stuff was there, like that would be great." Um, we've started to work with a convenience store, um, so it's about prepared food at its core, but they also sell a whole other basket of goods. Um, we just recently launched with a wine shop. Uh, if you're in downtown Manhattan, you can you can use this app. It's called Simply Wine, and they within a, a five mile radius of their shop will do a delivery to you in like within 30 minutes, basically. Um, or you can use the service to order and pay and walk in, and it's ready, and you can just walk right out. Um, so it's it's interesting for me to see like little nibbles on the outside of what we do, like little adjacencies. If you take it to the extreme, what I really view our platform doing is kind of freeing the the point of sale or the transaction from on top of the counter where it lives today on a literal point of sale terminal and putting it in a way like up in the cloud so it's accessible to anyone from anywhere. And basically what that means is, you know, local commerce can look very different in the future than it looks today. You can enable a customer to see the inventory of a local retailer, place an order, pay for it, and you can tell that local retailer exactly when that customer arrives so that they can run the order out to them and you, they never have to leave their car. Or they can deliver it to them in an urban setting. And I think that's a really interesting thing because I see that you know online retail is still not even 10% of all of retail. But man, specific industries 
absolutely feel the pinch of Amazon and other retailers getting into their space without having to pay for retail real uh, retail square footage in their real estate, without having to pay sales associates at the store, but just shipping something from a warehouse. And I think that ultimately I really value that local store and like local stores in general and their ability to help create neighborhoods. And if ultimately we're able to give those local merchants tools that help them to better serve their guests by having the order ready and waiting and available on demand where you can walk down and get it two minutes later instead of waiting two days for it to be shipped to you. Um, I think that's a noble calling. I think that's a a great thing. And um, ultimately where I see Olo going beyond restaurants and into kind of a broader um, retail uh, strategy of, of working with other local retailers to help them better serve their customers. Well, fantastic. I think, uh, I hope you're, you're here for 10 years because we need, uh, we need guests. And so we'll, you know, we'll, co- we'll invite you back to hear about, uh, about the future as it, uh, as it presents itself. But well, thanks so much. I mean, I, we're really, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting story. It looks like you've got a very exciting future. And I hope you'll uh, come back to share um, some additional anecdotes as this story continues to unfold. Thanks a lot, Neil Glass, for being here today. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.